Hi, I'm Dr. Daniel Golshevsky, paediatrician and father of three. Welcome to my summer series of Dr. Golly and the experts. Christmas is only around the corner and many of us are hanging out for a well-deserved break. So I'm absolutely thrilled to bring back some of my favourite past episodes that I've handpicked just for your summer holidays. I love this first episode with my dear friend Hamish McLaughlin. You may know him as a sports presenter on Channel 7. We first met at the Royal Children's Hospital when he had his first child who was diagnosed with West Syndrome, a form of childhood epilepsy. I hope you enjoy this episode where I start by teasing him for choosing the name Miller. Choose the name Miller or spell it like I spelt it. Which would you like me to address <laughs> first? My next question is going to be why you spelled it wrong. Okay, so let's t- talk through this. My Miller, M-I-L-L-A. Your Miller? M-I-L-A. Okay, so I was in the hospital. We argued, uh, not argued, we debated Miller or Indy as Miller was in Soph's hands. Minutes into her life. And I said to Soph, is it a Miller or an Indy? And Soph said, Miller. So we went with Miller. We love the name Miller. Two days into her life, the nurse walks into our room, looks at the end of the bed and says, oh, Myla, what a lovely name. And I say, can you please put another L in there? <laughs> so for 48 hours, she was M-I-L-A and she became M-I-L-L-A. And you and I both know that's the best of the spellings. And now every single time that I speak to Hayman and talk about his daughter, I've referred to her as Millala. Yeah. And you refer to mine as? Marla. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> now, to give a bit of background, because I think this story needs it, mm-hmm. Miller isn't just the child that arrived. There is a little bit of a, a journey before her birth. Can you give us that story? Yeah, sure. So my wife and I met in uh, 07. I started seeing her in March 09, married in March 10. She had had a very bad car accident and was told that giving birth, having children, highly unlikely because of a reproductive system had almost shut down as a result of sort of staying alive, which I'm told that happens when the body's trying to survive things that aren't important right then get affected. So when we were married, we went to an IVF specialist called Lynn Burmeister. And she said, you've got a sort of a 33% chance of having a child through IVF, 3% naturally. It's like, okay, let's sign up, let's get on with it. So we went through a journey of about 18 months and it got to a point where it was like, we're doing everything. We can't do anything other than find this uh, amusing and part of the process because it was a tricky journey. And finally, uh, first egg, at the 10-day mark, you get the phone call. Is that Sophie McLaughlin? Yes. Date of birth? I'm sorry to tell you that you're not pregnant. Tears, go and see a movie, 48 hours of agony. Uh, operation between the first and second egg, second egg, 10 days, phone rings, hold hands. Sorry to tell you, you're not pregnant. Third and final egg of the batch that we'd harvested. It goes in, 10th day, Scottish nurse from Lynn's office. I'm delighted to tell you you're pregnant. <laughs> and there it was. So after uh, probably 18 months plus two misfires, uh, a pregnancy. And her arrival was a bit of a roller coaster too. Well, Soph uh, at eight weeks bled very badly, and we we're in Bali and were told that we would lose the baby. We were at a wedding, and Soph had bled on the way and was worried about it. And I remember walking along the beach, and we got hold of Lynn Burmeister, and she said, 
what is the colour of the blood? Is it really fresh or does it look old? I was like, no, no, it's fresh. And you could just tell that she was, well, that's not good because it's new and it's not old blood and it's obviously happening right now and that shouldn't be happening as a result of an eight-week pregnancy. And we talked through options and she said, why are you there? I said, we've got a wedding tomorrow. He said, well, can you avoid going to the wedding? I said, yeah, of course we can avoid going to the wedding. She said, actually, just go to the wedding, but car there, sit down as soon as you get there, no dancing, and then still as you can for, until 12 weeks. It's like, okay, we're allowed to walk? She said, not really. So we go to uh, the wedding and so far after about four minutes says, I've got to disappear, goes to the bathroom. And after about half an hour, I could see Sophie on the steps just in tears saying, it's like, okay. She said, the bleeding's unbelievable. We've got to get out of here. So, I'm a cry, so I'll cry. So we find the lady in charge who just happened to speak English, which was important. We still have a really big problem here. We're eight weeks pregnant and I think we're about to lose it this afternoon. She just crashes into action. So about an hour and a half later, there is an ambulance that arrives. Soph's remained lying down. And we're in the back of an ambulance going to the Dempasar Hospital. And if we're not doing 100, we're doing 115. I'm looking out the window, bikes flying into sort of local paddy fields, rice paddy fields, and this ambulance got us there. We got there and we got a very bad diagnosis from the doctor. Like, this baby won't survive. We need to terminate the pregnancy. I said, that is not happening. There's got to be another option. These were bed rest for six weeks. It's like, okay, scrub what you've written on that paper out, put that in the bin and go and tell my wife there is a chance here because I can't not give her hope. So he goes in, says this is a scenario. And we extended barley. She didn't leave the bed for a long time. We get through to I think it's 12 or 13 weeks where Lynn gives us a ticker's like it's embedded again. You're going to be okay for now. So that was eight weeks to 13 and we're okay. Then at eight weeks, uh, sorry, eight months, Soph gets preeclampsia and you'll explain preeclampsia better so than that's me. that's where blood supply to the placenta starts to struggle a bit mm-hmm. and the baby says, I need more blood pressure. So the mum's blood pressure just goes through the roof, which is fantastic for the baby, but not so good for the mum. So, so if, and also the swelling because there's the placenta, I think at this point was sort of almost leaking and the swelling was filling up Soph's legs and she looked like a pool table and you could press your thumb into the leg and the print would stay there for an hour. And somebody came to the, hosp- uh, to the house and said, you need to go to the hospital now. And I said, oh, it's just preeclampsia, being as ignorant as most uh, young men are. She goes to the hospital and Pregs Pile says, you'll be having this baby tonight. We're having an emergency C-section. Yeah, it's unbelievably dangerous for the mum. And the only way to completely cure it, deliver. Mm. So we went and did that. We, uh, uh, I think we arrived at hospital like nine at night and had Miller at three or four in the morning. And you know how you do the all the home birthing classes, you've got to have the bag there ready to go, everything's in place. We headed down with a money clip. <laughs> And a mobile phone. This goes out the window. Yeah. So it was uh, it was a journey to get Miller on the ground. And then the assumption is, golly, it's going to be fine now. There'll be nothing stops us now. We've gone through the worst of it. 
So let's fast forward to the next chapter. Miller is now eight months old. She's a blissful, wonderful, gorgeous baby girl. When did you realise something wasn't right? So I've realised before me. So we had gone to America. Soph loves the snow. So she said, why don't we have our first white Christmas together? Miller's um, sort of old enough to travel. We don't have to do anything December, January. This is Miller's first time in the snow. And then on the way back, we go via Byron Bay, which was where my mother-in-law lives. I then have to leave Miller and Soph there with the mother-in-law and go and do the Australian Open tennis. And about day three, I get a text from Sophie saying, can you call? And she knew that I was on air third night uh, hosting you know, the primetime night session. I said, I'll call you in the ad break. She says, the next ad break. It's like, oh, okay. So I ring and say, you okay? She says, there's something wrong with Miller. There's something wrong. As a mother, I know it and visually I know it. And she has these, we were calling them twitches. She twitches. She does it six, seven, eight, nine times. And then it's like you've pulled the power cord from her and she's out for four hours. But before the twitches, I can't get anything from her. So I know they're coming. And she, she was the most alert child. Everything was just noticed by her. Yeah, every, so it was, that was the, so the first time I called was the phone call. Soph being un- unbelievably observant, critical to this whole story, seeing it, rings the next morning, says, she's done it again, I've videoed it, I'm getting on the next plane, comes to Melbourne, I ring Channel 7 and say, I don't think I'm on tonight, I've got a bit of a problem, we go and see Liz Hallam in South Melbourne. Paediatrician. Our paediatrician, and she says, show me the video, and we show the video, and her face just goes from hopeful to terrified. I think she knows what she's seeing and she just goes straight for the phone, puts it down and says, Hamish, Sophie, the head of neurology is waiting for you at Royal Children's. They're in the emergency department. Go and don't go home. We okay here, Liz? She goes, go. So we head to Royal Children's. A junior fellow meets us at the entrance of emergency, says, you, Hamish and Sophie? Yep. Is this Miller? Yes. She says, come with me. I said, what's happening here? She says, I can't say anything, but in two hours' time, someone will come and see you. I said, where are we going? She says, well, we're going to a room to put 37 electrodes on your daughter's head and she's going to be monitored upstairs by a team of 12. Can you give us any indication here of what's happening? She said, well, I'm, I'm not uh, allowed to say much and they don't know, but they will soon. So Soph and I have gone from healthy child in America, in Byron, learning to swim, to suddenly being in a room by ourselves with Miller, 37 electrodes on her head just saying, what, what happens next here? And that felt like an absolute eternity, I imagine. Two hours is a long time. Yeah. So she was, she was holding on to her bunny. She has this habit of just still. She twists the fur of the bunny in her hand and she's been doing it since 2012. 
twists it. I was looking down at her thinking, how could anything possibly be wrong with you right now? Because you're the only part of this that isn't working right now. So we, we wait and we wait and we wait. So Jeremy Freeman, who is the head of neurology at the Royal Children's, walks into the room surrounded by you know, nine or ten or eleven others after two hours of monitoring. And he says, Hi, I'm Jeremy Freeman. Your daughter has West Syndrome. There's a 10% chance she dies in hospital, 80% chance she's got brain damage for life, 10% chance she gets through unscathed. Okay. Things have changed. So we talk and we talk and we talk. And after an hour, I said, what haven't I asked you? He said, well, you haven't asked me if I'm the best in the world at this. I said, are you? He said, it's me or a guy in Canada. And he isn't here. I said, what was your last name again? He said, Freeman. I said, this is Miller Freeman. Save a life. So there was one of those afternoons you don't see coming. So then the process starts really of saving your daughter's life, which isn't in the brochure. So the options were pray and do nothing else to whatever God you want to pray to and leave it up to them or start giving formulas of pregnisolone four times a day for 31 days and hope the seizures stop within six days. So just jumping in here to clarify... Prednisolone is the medicine. It's a steroid. It's a really wonderful medicine. It's used widely for various different conditions, but it has significant side effects. And, and especially when you're using it in such high doses with enormous frequency as we had to do with Miller. Uh, there, are, there are behavior changes. You get a voracious appetite, which causes weight gain. The face, it totally changes in appearance. The cheeks go red, the skin thins, and it bruises easily all over the body. It, it's really, as parents, you, you don't recognize your own child. It's, it's confronting, and it's a really difficult thing to manage. And you do this all the while knowing that this could potentially be saving your daughter's life. And, and what, what do you want to see in that time? Well, you, you want the seizures to lessen almost immediately on the prednisolone. And you really want them to stop within a week. So we gave it six days. Six days until we knew what the future would hold for Miller. Uh, so we start. And he then gives us the... Um, he then gives us the scenario with the prednisolone where within 24 hours she'll have disliked it so much, she'll have screamed so much that she won't have any voice box really at all. She'll dislike it so much that she'll almost have locked her on. You'll need a strong man like you to open up the mouth so that the other can put the um, formulas in. She'll have an appetite so large that she'll end up putting on so much weight that you really won't recognize her in three weeks because of the swelling from the steroid plus just the intake and influx of food. Come back and see me on the 14th day. Um, we stayed in for two days and then we went home. Um, 
So 14 days was a milestone. 30 days was a milestone because we stopped the pregnisolone three months and six months. And you can explain the ECG, but what should happen when you have an ECG is your brain pattern should be sort of largely rhythmical, going across the screen, almost horizontal with a few waves in it. What happens when you have West syndrome, which is either in two-thirds of cases brain cancer, brain tumour or brain lesion, a third of cases, none of those things but the same outcome. Uh, it's like the TV has gone from a smooth pattern, colour, high def, to snow. And as a result, problems. Now, one of the most important things you mentioned was Soph's recognition that she knew something was wrong. Mm. She had the wisdom to take a video of it. Mm-hmm. The reason why that's so important is because babies shudder all the time. It's a reflex. They shake, they twitch, they move. There are phenomena called hypnagogic and hypnopompic phenomena. We still do them even as adults where you twitch just before you fall asleep and as you're waking up, you twitch as well. It's an innate reflex. And because babies are coming in and out of sleep so many times and because we're watching them, we see them shudder all the time. They jerk and so... There are lots and lots of parents out there who are terrified that it's a seizure. What makes West syndrome different is that it's a triad. There are three features. There's the shudders, which are very, very undeniable, which is probably why the paediatrician and Jeremy knew exactly what they were dealing with when they saw the video, Soph's video. You also have an almost complete arrest of development, And sometimes development can go backwards if the diagnosis is delayed. And the last thing you have, which is unique to West syndrome, is you have the EEG changes. So an electroencephalogram, what aim you're talking about, the dots that you stick on to someone's head. In epilepsy, you're only going to see an abnormality if the person is having seizure activity at the time that you're recording. And if you're recording for a few minutes, what are the chances that someone has an infrequent event at that time? It's very Mm. unlikely. But in West syndrome, there is this thing called hypsarrhythmia, which is the change that you see. And you can see it instantly. So with West syndrome, it's something that you can diagnose very quickly. And that is crucial because delayed diagnosis, delayed introduction of that treatment, whether it is prednisolone, vigabatrin, all these different ones that we have, the later you institute that treatment, the worse the outcomes. So I have a question for you. You are a numbers man. Statistics is your world. You're like a one-man almanac. How did those numbers play on your mind in the quiet moments, the 80-10-10, the six days, the 14 days, the one month? The 80 was the number that was terrifying. The 10, the 10 was unthinkable, the first 10. 10% chance she dies in hospital. Like that sentence being delivered to you, like the 80% brain damage in some form for life is like, it's a lot. Like if I got 80% for something at school, I was pretty chuffed. I didn't often get it. of being okay, that's an outcome that's so small, it's hard to actually even being positive on every front and a guy that's always, you know, glass is overfilling with life. It's like 10%. It's not big enough to get hopeful. So in my mind, it's like 
You can't die. 80%. So the numbers are against you on every front. But when you're in a crisis, there's some something you find as an individual, as a couple, as a family that gets you walking forward. So I'm not sure whether it was the 10% or whether I dismissed the numbers completely because you actually contemplated the numbers. All you do is go round and round in circles and be in a state of despair. So it's like, okay, let's go to the process. Four meals, four times a day for 14 days. No, that's too far. Let's come back. Four meals at 7 o'clock, 11, 3 and 7, day one. Let's hope she stops her seizures. Because I've been told six days, if she doesn't stop in six days, they don't stop. So suddenly you bring it back down to 7, 11, 3 and 7, day one, and it's got to stop by day six. So your life suddenly becomes numbers and you're doing it by the mill and you're doing it by the day. Now, you mentioned family coming together. Mm. Your family is very big, very strong. There are CEOs, there are broadcasters, there are barristers, actors, farmers. You've got three brothers. Tell me how your family rallied around you and Soph and mm. how they supported you through this. Extraordinarily, I can't imagine doing this without a family around you. So there's going to be people that listen to this and they're in a terrible spot with no one. How you cope with that, I don't know. I remember saying to Soph, I'm doing this phone call once. Get your side of the family on, mother, sister's dad. I'll get all mine on with just one phone call and everyone can rally from there. So we got one phone call where everyone dialed in. We said, so this is the scenario and went through everything that we'd spoken about. And, and I could just remember the silence, you know, and we're a, we're a flippant, fun family. The silence said so much, you know. It's like there's none of the, it'll be okay, you know, we're all here. It's like everyone just taken aback thinking, fuck me. So Gillen, who's the eldest of four brothers, said I'll organise this because I said that someone needs to be there, 7, 11, 3 and 7 to help with the pregnant ladies. I'll sort out the 7, 11, 3 and 7. That was about all he said, but it was all he needed to say. It's like, he said, no, I'll do the 7. So I'd see him every morning at 7. And from there, the process started of saving an eight months old life. You know, it's like, okay. And he's very process-driven. Process and it was a bit the same with this. I'll see at 7. See at 11, three, see at 3, see at 7. So the, the, the family support was extraordinary. The silence was terrifying on that initial call. I remember Banjo, the, old, uh, the third brother, walking in on about day 20, say. He said, I want to see Miller. I said, she's in the front room. He goes, no, no, there's two kids there. One of them's not Miller. I said, that's Miller. Unrecognisable. Tell me about the moment you saw Gil on the couch. 
So day day one and two in hospital, three, four, five, six of the terrifying period were at home. And Gillen would come in every morning and say, all right, off we go, let's do this. And on day four, he came in and said, today's the day. Won't have a seizure today. We're having sort of five seizures, the first day, six seizures, sets of, because they're how many at a time, eight, nine, ten? In clusters. So we would call them, you know, seizures, a cluster seizures. So you should have five sets of seizures on day one, day two, day three. He comes in on day four and Gil says, today's the day. She will not have a seizure today. I've got a good feeling about today. Today's where it ends. Great. So he sits on the couch facing out. I go to the fridge, which is behind, getting the pregnisolone ready. I walk through the kitchen to the living room, around the front of the couch, just to see Gillen in tears. Holding Miller, having seizure. I was like, this, regardless of the positivity, isn't up to us anymore. Whoever's in charge, and it's not us, it's not Jeremy, has got to make a call soon on this, and we're still not sure how it plays out. So... I think that was when I realised how serious it was probably. We're at day four and we've got two days left and if it didn't stop within six, history says and medical records say it doesn't end well. You and Soph, what was the darkest hour? The most terrifying part of it was not the initial diagnosis. It was day 14 going in for the second CG scan. So we had gone through day one, two, three, four and five and had seizures every day, lots of clusters. Day six stopped and we take that as... This is outstanding. But you're not really sure. Did I miss a seizure? Is she having seizures during her sleep? Have they got mild and we can't recognise them anyway? So day 14 was the second ECG scan. I just remember driving in and it's that horrific balance between not wanting to have hope and then being let down and not being so terribly despondent that life had got to a point where it was so glum. I remember going in and Soph and I, normally you're either talking or the radio's on or I think I only realised that we'd driven in and not said anything or listened to anything until the way home because the radio was still off and we hadn't said anything on the way in. So we'd just driven for half an hour to the Royal Children's just in silence. But the world, everything had stopped. Like if there was, if Michael Jackson was playing a concert out the front and he'd come back from the grave, I wouldn't have known. The whole world, everything's just insignificant and so secondary. So we as paediatricians have this luxury, for want of a better term, in that we don't see patients very frequently. Jeremy, for example, would have seen you at the beginning and then seeing you two weeks later. But in that two weeks, you're there every second. 
You're there day and night, you and Soph. How slow does the time move? Or is it all just a blur? I remember on day six, so seven o'clock, she'd had seizures on day five. Day six, seven o'clock, four mils of pregnisolone. 11 o'clock, hadn't had seizures between 7 and 11. Longest four hours in the history of the world. 11 o'clock, four mils. Longest four hours in the history of the world to 3 o'clock. Because you're thinking any second here, if she has a seizure, I am fucked. So we get through to the 7 o'clock four mils. It's time for bed, bath, dinner. And are you still having fun with Miller? Are you remembering? Not really. So are there laughs, are there giggles, chuckles, tickling? She got so, there's no noise because she's lost her voice box. You know, screaming, she's clearly in pain uh, through the whole process. But the mood is just so... Uh, tense, probably. That there's, you know, when you, you know, when you're just so focused elsewhere. There's no room for fun. No, you just need to get through. So, eight o'clock, we put her to bed after the seven o'clock four meals. I just remember saying to myself, "Don't say anything." I, it was almost like looking at a clock, and it was like. Like, this is going to be a long journey. We woke up the next morning, four meals, four meals, four meals, four meals, day seven, day eight, day nine, day ten. Got to day 14. We're seeing Jeremy today. Just the fear that she hasn't been having seizures, but the ECG scan showed problems. That was that was when it was like, that was the worst. What I want to ask you Did you and Soph ever feel an element of parental guilt? You ask why. Did it happen because we went to America? Being, you know, have we been selfish taking her overseas? You know, did, did we leave her in the sun in Byron? Like, is, is it our fault? Like, what, 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 what feed, what food, what... So the guilt... Maybe not. The sense of is it and was it us? Yes. Yeah, definitely. It's like, what have I done wrong here? And if I can give any advice to those that are listening that are thinking the same, don't. It'll, it'll eat you up and it'll churn you and it will destroy you as a couple and you will lay blame somewhere, whether it's yourself or on her or on me, and it's just not productive. And generally, it's not you. And if it is, drive on anyway. Doesn't matter. Deal with the situation. The cards have fallen. How you got there is not going to help looking in the rear view mirror. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right because what we do know about West syndrome now is that it, it can be caused by an underlying brain tumour or a structural 
anomaly or problem, but it can also simply be idiopathic, which means no reason at all. We don't know why. Um, it's got nothing to do with genetics, with the method of conception, with pregnancy. It's just simply, you know, for want of a better term, it's bad luck. Um, and, and the reason we even know about this syndrome is, is thanks to Dr. William West. He was a doctor who wrote a letter in, back in 1841 to The Lancet, which is probably the most famous medical journal. And um, in that letter, he described what he saw in his own son, James West. And he described it from the point of view of a, a doctor. So it was highly clinical, but he was also the father. And, and as you read it, you can, you can sense, you can really feel the anguish in his writing. You know, despite it being clinical and, and sterile and medical, it was, it was extremely emotive. And, you know, this was at a time where we didn't have medicine or treatment. He, he just watched seizure cluster after cluster happen and, and he could see the damage being done in his son. He could see the development stop and eventually regress. Now, thankfully, medicine has advanced to a point where we can do so much more for children diagnosed with West syndrome than back when William West first wrote his letter. Having said that, Hamish, it, it can be difficult for parents to accept that there just is no reason for what's happening. So let's move forward. The seizure clusters stop. Miller is now 14 months old. Tell me what happened with the highlighter. So 14 days, ECG scan's great. Three months, ECG scan is great. And he says if you can get to three months, you're done. You'll never see me again. He said, actually, just come and see it six months. Come and see me. I said, why? I like you. I like her. I like Miller. Said, just come and see me at six months because there's been one case that I've read about that, like, fuck, we're not over yet. So we go in and it is the greatest institution, the Royal Children's Hospital, but I'd love for the rest of my life just look at it from the outside. You go in and it's like, filled with brilliant people, saving children's lives every hour. And suddenly whoever were your gods and whoever were your heroes are in that building wearing scrubs. And we go to Jeremy's office and we're just waiting outside. And then Jeremy pops his head out and says, come on in. We go in. And this is now six months post-diagnosis. And... Jeremy says, where did Miller get that highlighter? I said, oh, she just stole it from the front desk. He said, Hasn't had it for long. I said, no, no, like a minute and a half. He said, okay. I'm not going to do an ECG. I'm just going to do some cognitive tests and see what happens. It's like, I don't really even know what he's talking about. But okay. He goes through a series of tests, hiding highlighters, taking lids off, turning things upside down. And after about four minutes, he said, I'm not doing an ECG scan. I said, why is that? He said, she's fine. That's what he meant, she's fine. He said, I've just done a series of tests that most two- and three-year-olds don't pass. She's passed all of them. None of what I've seen, none of what has happened makes medical sense. 
Like the good or bad is it's unbelievable. Miller is a miracle. She's a medical miracle. So what happens now? Is you go home and you open up a bottle of whatever you want to drink and you realize you're two of the luckiest parents in the world and you just keep going. I said, so do I see you again? Yes. Hope not. I said, well, I'm going to see you a lot because you're the most important guy in our life. Um, thank you. I said, thank you. Next. <laughs> and I'll tell you, whenever I walk down the corridor, bump into Jeremy, he, he and I still talk about Miller because she doesn't, she doesn't make any sense. She was a mil- miracle before she was born and now completely exceeding expectations, completely. I've got another question for you before we talk about Miller now, nine years later. After Miller, you wel- welcomed Indian Lex. When they were eight months, what went through your mind? There's always, once you've been through it, an awareness of how fragile the human life is. So I think I was much more aware. But to the point about blame as well, if you are always looking and searching and lifting up rocks, thinking, did she just, or did he just, it's just, you can't live like that. So at eight months, I don't think anything significant or in particular happened. But I've always heard people say, boy or girl, just healthy. It's like, boy or girl, just healthy. I promise you that's what you want. Everyone says it as a throwaway line. Until you've been there and until you've, looked over the edge, you don't actually really mean it. I really want a boy. Just boy or girl healthy. You know, you, know, you spoke about the miracle before. This this, this story just it keeps these layers to it. But it's like, and you spoke about why Miller. And it was just a name we liked. It had no meaning. Then someone came up to me in the street the other day and said, Listen to um, something you um, did around Miller. You know what Miller stands for? We're Spanish. You know that Milagro is miracle and Miller is M-I-L-A. Milagro, that's where it comes from. It's like, are you joking? You named her well. You didn't know that? No. Someone else was pulling the strings? Mm, Someone else was pulling the strings. Spend a moment and yeah. tell me about Miller now. Tell me where she's at. She's 10. She, she's been here before. Like, she's just wise. She's kind. She's clever. I'll go every night, regardless of whether I've been out late at night or not, and open the door to her room and with my phone, just shine a light on her, hopefully wake her up <laughs> and just have a chat with her. Like none of, you know this, none of this makes sense, 
because it's not what should be happening. And then, then she she can always ski. Sophie loves skiing, so this is where the snow returns, right? So Sophie's always taken her for a week a year to the snow, and I can't ski much, so Sophie's in charge. Last year, lockdown, they move and do term three at Mount Buller. And Sophie said, Miller can really ski. I said, one of the guys running the course said, you should get her in race club. She can really ski. So she goes and qualifies to do race club and then term three every morning, 8.30 on the mountain, off at 12, quickly get changed, go to school from one to five. And after about four or five weeks, the guy who's very tough goes, your daughter can ski. I think he's like Eastern Block, you know. Okay, great. Anyway, Victorian ski championships. She wins the ski cross and is runner-up of the giant slalom. And they say, the Nationals are coming up. So what do you mean the Nationals are coming up? She's got to go to the Nationals at Perisher. It's like, great. Okay. I said, well, this is ridiculous. She goes, yeah, it's great. I love it. Gets to the Nationals. Finishes second in the giant slalom and third in the ski cross and just towers up most of those skiing. It's like, you're good at this. She goes, yeah, it's good fun. I said, do you enjoy it? She goes, love it. I said, what do you love? She goes, you know when you're standing there in the gates and you hear the gun go off, something goes through your body? I said, it's adrenaline. She goes, ship it in. So, yeah, she she won Rookie of the Year in Mount Buller, age 10 through to 16, boys or girls. She came home looking like one of those rappers in the US with bling everywhere. It's just like I look at her and just think, I was filming. I said, the first guy I send the film to is you and Jeremy. I said, look what you helped um, get to the Nationals. And I still, I, still, I still look, I showed Sophie this the other day. You replied privately back to me and said, I'm not kidding when I say one in a billion. No, you don't understand what effect that video has on me because when you tell me about what Miller's doing, I'm ecstatic that she's walking. Are you serious? So when you tell me that she's top of her class, you tell me that she's won a race, I almost don't believe you. And when I see her, the effect that it has on me, you simply can't. You can't understand it. You and Soph can't understand it. You think that you've got a one in a billion child. You Even you don't understand. When I say that she's a miracle, I've, I'm really not just using words. Mm. Because not every child with West Syndrome has that outcome. Amazing how many people around the world have got in contact and... I always say, give me your number, I'll ring you. And it's terrifying. Now, what a lot of people don't know is that you and Soph play a part in my practice because I have, over the years, diagnosed a few children with West Syndrome. And one of the first things I do is I'll text Soph and I'll say, hey, can you get in touch with his family? Yeah. And the answer is an immediate, absolutely no problem. So... Let me ask you, what message do you have for those parents in that same funk where you found yourself, first few days, first few weeks? What do you tell them? How do you support them? And what message do you have for other people out there who may be the extended family of that child? Mm. I'll start with the easy bit, the extended family. Extended family pieces be there and talk about it. When we're going through IVF, I said to Soph, she said, should we tell people? 
100% we should tell people it's so much easier. And then once you started talking about it, you got help, you got advice, you got um, you know, people sort of reaching out saying, have you tried it? You should ring, you know, so it becomes easier. Um, so talk about it as an extended family and normalise it. We, we, we toyed with would we ever do any of this? And I asked Miller when we did the last time I cried, I said, this will never see the light of day. It's up to you. And she was eight. And she said, what's the upside, what's the downside? As an eight-year-old. Eighteen-year-old. <laughs> Unbelievable. I said, well, the downside is people know you had West Syndrome and there may be some judgments with that. Yeah, it's a form of epilepsy which has, you know, got to do with the brain and you may not want to share that. The upside is we might help someone. A mother, a father, a child might in some way make things easier. You say, well, if that's the case, play it. And the more that I've spoken about it, the more I think it has become easier for us. But the thing that I would say to your question around extended family and those coping with it is talk about it and share it. I can't promise you the outcome. But if it was just Sophie and I battling without anyone else, it would have been a lot more harrowing than it was. When I ring, I rang a family in Canada on the way to the airport last week or the week before, they got hold of me and said, can we speak to you? Every time I'm ringing, it's like, please be the right 10%. I rang this family. So it's Hamish McLaughlin and they're they, they running a, um, a shop. They said, oh, let us go out to the storeroom. So it's like my husband and the wife I've never met before go out to a storeroom and we start talking. There's this unbelievable common ground. We start talking and they said, we've got a miller. I said, what do you mean? They said, we're the 10%. It's like crying. They're crying. <laughs> I said, does anyone ever tell you it's going to be okay? I said, no. They can't. But give me your scenario. They started talking through it all. I said, I'm not qualified drive on. You're in great shape. I said, do you have a rear view mirror in your car? They said, yeah. I said, let's rip it out. <laughs> Don't look back. And we had our, where I live to the airports an hour and we talked the whole way and then I hung up. And I started getting photos of their child. They're at the same age Miller was when she got through the, when Jeremy had the highlighter. 14 months and I sent a photo of Miller doing the second run of the Nationals in the giant slalom. I said, this is what you've got to look forward to. And they rang straight back in tears saying that's been the most helpful thing we have been able to do since diagnosis talk to you with an outcome that we pray for. So Miller, as an eight-year-old, saying it might help someone. Just that one phone call alone. So the advice, talk about it. I pray for you. Um... Do whatever you can as early as you can. Don't guess. Go and get a diagnosis. Don't hope. Go and get a diagnosis and help. If you're in doubt, 
go in immediately. If you're even 5% chance of being in a bad spot, go in. The worst case is you've wasted two hours of your life. I would not have taken the video of Miller, probably. And I'm a male back then, eight, nine years ago, 40, it'd be fine. It wouldn't have been, and Miller's not where she is now if I'm in charge. Be diligent, be aware, don't leave it to chance. You know, I mean, you, you're better speaking about this than me. What happens if it's a week later we go in? Well, there is the fear that every cluster of seizures does more damage. Yeah. Last question for you. How has it changed your day-to-day life, your outlook on life? Completely different view of the world. Whatever was a problem prior was, in retrospect, so insignificant. It's amazing that a clever guy could have contemplated that as an issue. Now, unless it's really going to be affecting me in 10 years, like, don't even bother. Ignore the trivialities. It's like we all get so wound up in the trivial and the inane and the mundane that's like, look over and pass that. And I've got better at that. In fact, not much phases me now. I'll walk out and host the Brownlow of the Olympics. I'll be texting you 30 seconds beforehand saying, give me a word to get into the opener. It just doesn't bother me anymore. Like it should have, oh, sorry, should have's wrong. It doesn't phase me anymore like it used to or would have. Now it's like, are my kids healthy? Yes. Are my immediate family healthy? Yes. Are Sophie and I in love with each other? Yes. Massive gap. What else is going on? Are we going to hear your, your uh, retirement broadcast, 2034, Winter Games? Winter Games. Calling your daughter? It would be very difficult to do. I would hang in there if it was a guarantee. I think winning the Victorian Championships is probably big enough to can run her up in the Nationals. God knows where it all goes. But Richard Fox called his daughter Jess Fox to gold in Tokyo. I cried watching him call her. Imagine me. I'm looking forward. (laughs) (laughs) Aim, thank you very, very much. Pleasure. That was Hamish McLaughlin, whose daughter Miller was diagnosed with West Syndrome when she was just eight months of age. For more information on West Syndrome and where to go for support, follow the links in the notes of this episode. And to enjoy more parenting stories like this one, please like, follow and share Dr Golly and the Experts wherever you listen. Listener.